2019 has been a roller coaster year to say the least. We had an election. I, Matamera Ramaphosa, swear that I will be faithful to the Republic of South Africa. We saw fathers and sons take the stand. Why do you call it a state capture? Is that expression meaning that the judges are captured? Is the government captured? Is the parliament captured? It's an exaggeration. It is meant to enhance this narrative against Suma. I'm looked at as a criminal. I'm looked at as this face of corruption. Um, you know, so I'd just like to, to say to the public out there, I'm not corrupt. I'm not taking any money from anybody. I never have and I never will. We rejoiced together. And we endured dark times. From the 17th of December right through to the 13th of January, we should not be in a position to have any form of load shedding. On this special episode of The Story, we talk to editors and senior reporters in our newsroom about the stories and newsmakers that dominated 2019. We'll talk politics, breaking news and entertainment. I am Rian Grobler, News24 Senior Desk Reporter, and this is Our Year in Review. Come on, man. Stop being lazy thinkers. My simple thing of being re-elected unopposed or all the time being elected unopposed is it's, it's, it's very simple. I work very hard. I don't, I don't take anything for granted. You give it to me. I will work on it and perfect it. I pay attention to the smallest detail. I know everything that is happening in this conference. So I'm not a dictator, I'm a hard work. Well, it's been another crazy year for politics in South Africa, and uh, we're fresh out of the EFF's conference that wrapped up on Monday. Our senior politics reporter, Tidi Madia, has been there the whole time. Tidi, what kind of year was 2019 for the EFF? It's been a mixed bag of a year, but I think the important thing is that they did grow their support. But I think coming off of that conference, they'd argue that they put on a relatively smooth conference minus one major incident. Um, it went right according to plan from what I understand. They have new leaders. It was successful. For the most part, it was better than what even the governing party does, you know. I think the DA, they almost rivaled the DA in putting on a really good conference. But of course, if you're speaking to people in the governing party, they'd argue they don't have as much might as we do. But I think, yeah, it's been a mixed bag. And obviously, there's always this thing around the media and the EFF. That's also been part and parcel of the 2019 story. And it was reflective now in December as they held a conference where Daily Maverick wasn't allowed at the conference, ENCA randomly pulling out the following day. But that conversation and contestation between the media and EFF, I think, is going to stay for the longest time as they seek to develop their own models to communicate with their own constituency. But yeah, I think I'd give them, they might give themselves a 90 out of 100. I think they had about a 60 in my eyes. They did face a number of scandals this year, though. How do you think they handled that? I think they handle scandals badly, period. Um, I don't think they do really well with scandals. They would argue that they are always open to answering, but actually they're very defensive in answering about scandals, and that's problematic. The VBS links to the EFF are concerning are very serious and should have thorough and proper answers. And if Julius keeps saying he's being targeted, that's the leader of the EFF, the CIC of the EFF, cons- 
consistently says he is a target. And I had to sit down with him just ahead of this NPA. And I said to him, you keep saying you're a target. Why? And he didn't give me a clear answer. But I also said to him, but you also don't account. When you speak about the scandals that he has, over and above the VBS links, which aren't direct links to the EFF, you also have incidents where he's directly implicated as the leader of the party. I'm thinking about the scuffle outside Mama Winnie Madikizela Mandela's funeral with the video footage, the discharging of a gun at the EFF conference. The comments about land are coming from Julius Malema. He can argue political speech, but he made the comments. That's a fact. So there's a lot of things, there's a lot of, um, he claims around tenders around the city of Joburg and Twani, kickback claims, you know, those things are linked to the party. And I don't think that they've been clear enough in articulating where they stand. He says he accounts by going to the courts when he's asked to, he, he goes when he's asked to, all the way back to on-point engineering that happened while he was in the ANC Youth League in Limpopo. He says he attended every single appearance he had to make until the judge himself decided to strike the matter off the wall. So in his eyes, the fact that he, he attends is enough. In my eyes, I, I'm not so sure. And at the heart of it, though, you asked the question about how they deal with the issues around their, 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 their scandals. I don't think nearly well enough. Speaking of scandals and speaking of being a target, um, surely President Cyril Ramaphosa has been a target of the EFF uh, for as long as he's been in office. Um, <laughs> since, uh, since the start of his term, as uh, the president of, of South Africa and also then the president of, of, of the governing party, the ANC. How, how has he fared in terms of uh, the challenges facing South Africa, such as fi fixing the state-owned enterprises, for example, um, other social issues? Uh, I'm thinking about gender-based violence, xenophobia, crime, a lot of things happening mm -hmm. on his watch. Mm -hmm. So I just first want to say this. The EFF is correct to target Sol Ramaphosa, so does the DA. That's the job of the opposition, is to keep the incumbents in check. So that's perfectly fine. That's welcome. In fact, that's what democracy requires and what South Africa requires. And in terms of how Sol Ramaphosa is fed, they say, our president is at a rough year, hey? He's had a really difficult year. It goes from one problem to the next. It never really stops, Rian. I mean, you spoke about the SOEs. And while he tries to fix one SOE, another falls off. While he tries to navigate another, and also his proposals, every proposal he has of getting them right is then hamstrung by his own alliance, his own political affiliations. The trouble with South Africans is we really want to separate Cyril Ramaphosa, the president, the head of state, from Cyril Ramaphosa, the ANC president, that is in an alliance with trade union federation, COSATU, that is an alliance with leftist communist party, the SACP, and you actually, you actually can't do that because all those things must come together to work. And they're, they're not working. They're consistently at odds. What I think Cyril Ramaphosa thinks needs to be done at the state level is always at odds with the policies and the positioning of these parties that the ANC is aligned to. And he owes his presidency as head of state to this machinery that comes with the ANC and the governing party. So I don't think he's fared very well in trying to navigate that space. And at moments, I've seen him make a decision to choose country of a party and some within the ANC will tell you how dangerous that is because you cannot leave unfortunately Lutuli house the ANC headquarters vacant empty that seat will be taken and then you're removed as head of state because they command that's where the center of power lies it lies at Lutuli house not at the union building as many south africans believe but very quickly i just want to say what many have said to me is 
what we are dealing with are the repercussions, the consequences of the past 10 years. And Cyril's work will actually be seen at a much later stage, maybe 10 years from now. You know, there's a lot of impatience with Cyril Ramaphosa. There's a lot of scandals about he also how he also became president. I mean, the leaked emails that News24 exposed this year, um, the public protector's reports into how much he was he benefited in terms of his own um, campaign within the ANC to become president of the ANC in 2017 is quite problematic and how even people are trying to react around it that people don't want that to be touched because hey this is our president we love this guy we want this guy over the last guy the last guy obviously being former president jacob zuma and i don't know if that's the right approach to that this is our guy i think south africans are too too hung up on personalities and um knowing an absolutes that they're failing to then also hold them to account because you know what what we should be looking for is a principled morally upright leader if you used underhanded tactics to get to where he is and if he's beholden to particular people even if it's the so-called white monopoly capital then we must be concerned as a state because then the decisions that he makes as head of state seek to serve them and not the country so i think to answer your question is that a tough year so he's between a rock and a hard place almost in a catch-22 situation but at all times but you're saying he's paying more than lip service I think so. I think it's only fair to say that he is trying. Well, let's move on to uh, our opposition party. And I think the biggest shake-up of the year must have been within the DA. So oh, yeah. take us through some of the changes and the power dynamics at play in the, in the DA at the moment and what the future might hold for our, our largest opposition party. The DA. <laughs> <laughs> All our parties, actually. Anyway, so with the DA, um, when Helen said she's making a comeback, she's available, people in the DA will tell you that, one, they knew she had already in the bag by just saying, I want in. And that's when Musi should have known it's too late for you. And we knew once she was elected back in, there was no way Musi Maimon was going to survive for long. But the DA took a knock that, for some strange reason, they didn't see coming. Yet all of us would have told you as journalists and analysts that, you're not going to do well at those polls, Musi. And you're not going to do well because in part of Cyril Ramaphosa, but also you are also all over the place, you know? And you've had the Patricia DeLille problems that you had in 2018. You continue carrying those with you into this year. And they didn't believe it because they kept saying their polls are showing a different number. And I'm like, but all the other external polls are telling you you're in trouble and you're refusing to listen. So when the elections happened, that kind of sealed Musi Maimani's fate, that you won't stick around. The buck stops with the leader, and they want to grow their party. Now, having people like Helen Zilla back at the helm means that um, she keeps saying she'll stay in her lane, but she knows in her eyes, she's correcting the party. And, I, 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 and the interesting thing about that, rather, is as we wind off 2019, is that there have been by-election results since Helen Zilla's come back, since John Stanley has become interim leader. And... To be honest with you, we haven't seen the benefits of that as yet. In fact, they're still losing support in the by-elections. It might take a while to see whether or not the changes that have happened with Musi Maimani, Ethel Trollope, and Herman Mashaba, you know, the, the changes in the DA also resulted in the Joburg mayor stepping down and starting him and Musi Maimani starting what looks like a political party in the making, you know. They're saying it's a people's dialogue, almost like a Codessa where they want South Africans to talk about where we are and where we need to go and what they want to see. But let's be honest, we've been down this road before um, with Mampele Rampele's party political platform, which eventually became a khang, which is now in the analogs of history, of political history. So, yeah, it's been a... I've touched on many things, I'm sorry. There's a lot that happened with the DA. <laughs> 
Don't worry about it, CD. Politics is certainly a web that we can all get lost in. Thanks so much for your time. Um, it will certainly be interesting to see what the DA comes up with next year when they have their elective conference. I think it's time for you to have some rest. One of the more heartbreaking stories we reported on this year was the xenophobic attacks on foreign nationals. Sarah Evans is News 24's investigative reporter and she's in studio with us today. She has been following the xenophobic attacks and their aftermath since the beginning. Sarah, can you tell us when these attacks started? So, we know that the first major violent attacks happened on the 1st, 2nd and 3rd of September. And, and there were two events that kind of kicked off this latest eruption of violence. So the one was the burning down of a, a building where some people were living in the inner city of, of Johannesburg. And so there were allegations that came out that this was some kind of drug den or whatever the case may be. And then at the same time, there was a truck driver strike, strike in KwaZulu-Natal that turned violent and it had severe xenophobic elements to it and essentially it was a response to you know foreign nationals getting a lot of work as truck drivers so you had these two events and and i think what is also important to remember is that prior to september there had been a build-up to this you had seen attacks in july you'd seen attacks uh, and kind of an angry mob um, attacking people in Joburg and in Pretoria sort of in the beginning of August. So by the time September, the beginning of September comes around, there's already a lot of frustration and a lot of violence that is already going on. This particular issue of xenophobic violence that was sparked in September uh, also caused some diplomatic eruptions, especially from other African leaders. How has South Africa's government reacted to this? Well, it was very interesting because, again, just to take a step back, you know, there was a deep denial from government that in this, this was xenophobic at all initially. Um, in fact, you had the Justice Cluster Ministers do this briefing um, on the 10th of September and, and you know, the, the heading of that press statement is South Africa is not a xenophobic country. Meantime, detailing, you know, all of these terrible attacks that had happened. So then um, after the fact, I think there was a lot of pressure on President Cyril Ramaphosa to actually react and respond to what was happening in the country. And he then sent diplomatic you know, envoys to go and essentially apologize um, to some of these countries. So for the Ramaphosa administration to send these envoys and essentially to make the point and, and acknowledge that there is a problem um, in the country, you know, is, is a, a very important one. Could you quickly t talk us through uh, the aftermath of, of, of the attacks and what, what, is, what has happened to the people who have remained behind and those who have left? So what I found when I was speaking to people is that there's a deep cynicism amongst many people who have stayed. Um, many people who have stayed behind, you know, have weathered the xenophobic outbursts in the past. So this is not their first experience. And for many people, it's a case of, well, you close your shop until it passes and then life kind of goes on. So it's, ve it's a very cynical approach. It's not so much that many people want desperately to stay here, but it's like, you know, this is not a problem that is ever going to go away. Um, many, many people left. I mean, we don't have the latest deportation figures from the Department of Home Affairs for 2019. So we don't know exactly how many people were deported, first of all. And we also don't know exactly how many people left of their own 
you know, volition. The state is deeply xenophobic. It treats, you know, we treat migrants and asylum seekers and people who are in the country as refugees with a lot of disdain. It's very difficult to be in the country legally and to get um, legal papers as an asylum seeker in South Africa. Um, you know, as one lawyer explained to me, unless you are essentially a very, very well-off person who can afford to travel to, you know, one of four refugee reception offices in the country, most of which are closed, or whether or not you can afford to get legal assistance in that process or appeal it if it gets turned down. This is a very long process. It takes a long time to get appointments. And in the meantime, you are really vulnerable to being arrested for not having the correct papers on you. Um, there's a constant scapegoating of migrants and, and people who come from other countries, whether or not it be uh, you know, shopkeepers in townships that are allegedly, you know, taking everybody's jobs or Nigerian people living in the Joburg CBD who are, you know, alleged drug dealers. There's a constant stereotyping and scapegoating of migrants. And um, this seeps through into the way that the criminal justice system deals with migrants. So crimes, for example, like not having your papers on you or being in the country, quote unquote, illegally, is treated as a very serious crime. And you can be thrown in jail. But whatever crimes were committed against you, for example, if you were caught up in a, you know, a mob of, of looters who were essentially assaulting migrants all over the place and, and murdering people, the state is, seems to be more concerned with the documents you may or may not have had, you, had on you at that time. All right, so let's wrap it up in a nutshell then. Um, it seems that xenophobia is deeply embedded in our society and it is something that is not really being addressed by government uh, or at, at, at any serious level. What do you think needs to be done to curb this scourge of xenophobia? I think there are a number of things that can be done um, that are more complex. And, you know, we can talk about interventions from a criminal justice side. Certainly there are lots of things that could change in terms of the law. Um, but there are two kind of key things that I think can be done relatively quickly with some political will. The one thing is around public education. There is a growing body of research that debunks a lot of the myths around migrants that they are that they are criminals that they are drug dealers that they are taking jobs and this data is readily available and in fact that you know there are a lot of people in sort of the civil society that are trying to campaign for that for that information to be made more publicly accessible and these are conversations we need to have in schools and um, in government and ensure that like for example if our parliamentarians debate this issue there's a real kind of factual and data-based um, way that we talk about, you know, migrancy. So I think that's the one thing that's relatively, you know, that's relatively low-hanging fruit. The other thing is is slightly more difficult, but certainly achievable, and and that is to speed up and clean up the way that we treat asylum seekers. Um, it's just not possible that it's not acceptable that there are only four refugee reception offices in the country and that they're not always open. And the system is so, so sluggish and it's so difficult for people to be in the country legally. So I think with a bit of political will, that system can certainly be improved and that would go a long way towards um, 
helping people who really need to be in the country because they are fleeing war and famine and all these terrible things to actually live here lawfully and live here safely. I think the other thing that can be done, which is a much more difficult you know, question to answer, but this is really about uh, inner city and township economies and how do we ensure that we make these spaces um, places that are accessible for everybody who lives there um, and that they don't become polarizing spaces that are kind of, uh, you know, ripe for prejudice because of competition around resources, because of poor service delivery. And how do we ensure that people who live and work in our inner cities and in our townships are able to do so altogether in a way that is fair for everybody who lives there? That was News24 investigative reporter Sarah Evans. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, 2019 was certainly a busy year for news editors everywhere, and particularly so here at News24. We've discussed a number of issues already, but in the studio we have Sheldon Marias, who's the assistant editor for Fast News at News24. Sheldon, take us quickly through some of the big stories of this year. Chish, 2019 certainly has been a busy year, as you state. There's all the way from elections to the spring box, you know, crime, courts, investigative stories around Bosasa, state capture. But in the fast news space, you know, there are two stories that really stand out for me. And the first is the Am I Next movement and what it represented. Born out of the, the, the killings of the likes of Uyunene, Mkhwetjana, we had Baby Lee Jekylls, a boxer out of the Eastern, uh, uh, Eastern Cape who was killed by her police boyfriend. What kind of an effect has the movement had in South African society, particularly in terms of reaction from government and civil society? Well, Rian, in a number of aspects or a number of parts of society, it's Unfortunately, it seems to have had little impact. We had the 16 days of activism. We had the usual calls that it has to be 365 days, but nothing tangible, no legislation um, you know that you could really come away with, and and the the, the you know to say, look, here is a, a line in the sand that has been that has been drawn. You know, so on on a societal aspect, it it seems as if, unfortunately, as I said, and rather tragically, nothing has been done. Where you have seen the the you know I suppose movement has been again from women from NGOs, you know, trying to do something and saying we can't trust men, we can't trust men to keep us safe. You know, we can't trust men not to attack us. And we can't trust men to do something about, you know, the other men who are attacking us. So we're going to do it ourselves or try and do something about it ourselves, Rian. And I think there's a long way to go. You know, just looking at the incidents we've seen, uh, you know, in in the early parts of December. Well, from the tragic to the bizarre, earlier this year we had a kidnapping. Uh, a young girl was kidnapped in front of a school and she became a household name, Amy Lee Diago. And the story itself became more and more bizarre as events unfolded. Tell us a little bit more about that. Um, I, I remember the story breaking. You and I were working and it broke early one morning and you mentioned that police are reporting that there's, there's a young girl who has been kidnapped um, you know, again, it's for me the two the, the the two stories we're speaking about are so linked because it speaks about the vulnerability of 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 women of children in people's minds, and I think this is that's particularly why the Amy Lee de Yaka story, especially initially, you know, really just flew. 
It really flew. People, you know, it's the type of story where, where people are looking for, for, for um, you know, updates as they come through. As the story rolled, what new information do we have? And it really did become more and more bizarre. You know, so you have this girl who's kidnapped in a country where children go missing weekly, if not daily. You know, she was kidnapped out of, uh, in, from in front of her school. You know, so that speaks to safety of children at schools when you're dropping them off. You know, a lot of parents, it's, it's, it's a parent's worst nightmare, right? And, and as the story went on, people were looking for updates only for us to find out late, hours later she'd been dropped off safe, safely somewhere. You know, was it the media attention that got to the kidnappers? Did they become scared? And then as time went on, you know, we started finding out that it was actually some Someone who orchestrated this, who was her, a teacher in her school, who happened to be a friend with her mother. And it just became more and more bizarre. And then there were drug links that came out. You know, was it an unpaid debt? Um, and, and, you know, and, and our coverage at News24, I must say, you know, not without being biased, was really, was really solid. We got to the heart of the story, speaking to family, our video coverage of it as well. You know, we'll, we'll see how the case obviously pans out, you know, because there is a court case underway, which we'll keep tracking. And, and I think it'll be one of the stories that, you know, we'll see as, as more details come out in court. We'll certainly head back onto the front pages, head, head back to the tops of websites as um, as those details emerge. Uh, so it's certainly going to be one of the more interesting stories going into 2020. That was uh, Sheldon Marias, uh, the assistant editor of Fast News at News24. Thanks for speaking to us, Sheldon. Thank you, Rianne. The xenophobic attacks and their aftermath, crime, corruption and gin-based violence made South Africans hang their heads in collective shame as with so many other societal ills that we have faced this year. But it hasn't been all doom and gloom for South Africa. For example, on the music front, songstress Shaw Majorzi has taken the world by storm by incorporating the Tsonga culture through her music and public image, and a hit named after wrestler and actor John Cena. Herman Ilov, News24's lifestyle and entertainment editor, joins us in our studio in a very cloudy Cape Town to talk about South Africans who have warmed our hearts and made us beam with pride. Hi Herman, please tell us more about the meteoritic rise of Shoma Jorzy. Yes, Rian, it's, and it was about time that the rest of the world um, woke up to South Africa's sound. Shom really made us proud this year uh, when her song John Cena went viral. The song first started trending with the hashtag the John Cena challenge and the dance videos that were popping up all over the world and this caught the eye of uh, John himself and then of course Shaw got to meet him on Kelly Clarkson's show and that moment I think just made us all feel so amazing and um, you know Shaw talking about how this was something that she just dreamed about and now it was a reality happening like right in front of our eyes and just a feel-good moment for South Africa that really captured the hearts. Why do you think Shaw's music appealed to so many people all over the world? I think it is uh, sitting in that essence of the sound that is so truly South African. It's something new for other people. I think that's what that's what attracted everybody in the world to it and then of course having John Cena be like I approve. <laughs> Um, not that she needed his approval, but that really helped Shaw with her song going global. And I think Herman also her personality has been so positive and has, has created such a wonderful vibe, hasn't it? Yeah, it just gives you a feel-good feeling and 
And that's like, I love that. Well, speaking of feel-good things, what were some of the other stories that captured our hearts this year? Another feel-good, happy story from South Africa is the Lovo Youth Choirs. They represented us on an American stage and made us proud going all the way through to the final. And um, it was so great to follow their journey on there as well and showing, showing the rest of the world what, uh, what we can do in South Africa. And then, uh, of course, when they came back, they were offered a record deal uh, with Sony, Sony and Simon Cowell. And it's just one of those uh, success stories from South Africa again. And once again, just like, here we are, world, we're taking our space. Absolutely, tr- truly inspirational. And just as the year drew to an end, we also conquered the universe. So how incredible was that, Arman? Oh, Zosie, I'm so, so proud of her. She's so sincere. She's, it just all comes from a good place. And to have Zosie uh, represent us on an international stage, uh, we're in good hands, guys. Like, I just saw some of the interviews she did afterwards and the grace and the professionalism she has. It, oh, it, it's amazing to have somebody represent our country like that. Um, and I'm so happy for her. Some truly inspirational stuff there from our entertainment and lifestyle editor, Herman Ilof. Herman, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, guys. And that's it. We'll be back again next year with more breaking news.